with you, Luke. Oh, what a joy it is to be together on the Lord's Day, celebrating Christ. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. That's the only reason that we have to have hope. That's the only reason that we have to enjoy the fellowship that we get to enjoy. It's all because of Jesus. And I, I know if you are anything like me, you look so forward to Sundays. I was texting with a couple of you uh, last night, just so excited about Sundays. Y- your, your favorite day of the week, like mine, is Sunday. You're so excited. You're so thrilled to be gathering together as the body of Christ. Uh, it, it's an oasis, right? When we gather together as the church uh, collected in Christ in the name of Jesus, it's an oasis from the rest of life. We gather together to remind each other of the beauty of Christ, that he is the best thing that there is in the entire universe, that there's nothing better, no, no sin, not even the gifts that he's given, that he's the best. He's all that we have, like we sung, and, and we say hallelujah to that. And so we come in every Sunday to gather, to be encouraged, and then we scatter, we leave to go to share Christ with others. And so here we are this morning, an oasis away from the hardships and the rest of life, and you come to hear the word of God, and you come to be encouraged. And as you open the doors, you walk in, and lo and behold, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse staring you in the face. And you think, well, this isn't much of an encouragement at all. (laughs) I was hoping to come to church to be encouraged in the word of God, and I don't want to stare at four horses and four horsemen and see uh, all that's going to happen. This sounds... Uh, terrible and terrifying, and and I just want to say this morning, I actually think that this will be very encouraging to our hearts. I think that this text this morning will be an oasis for us, if we would hear rightly what the word of the Lord has to say to us this morning. I think it's encouraging for a number of reasons. I'll give you one right off the top. There are so few churches in America that are doing what we are doing together this morning. There are so few churches that gather around the word of God and honestly open it and honestly let it speak and not use it in some Hallmarkian way, right? Where it's just a bumper sticker or a magnet on a refrigerator and that's it and go home and be happy. No, we, we take the word of God seriously. And then add to that, there are very few churches taking the word of God seriously, who would even consider diving into Revelation? They take the word of God seriously, but they think that Revelation, we can't fully understand. We don't know, so we just won't go there. So I I think that what we're doing already should be an encouragement to each one of us that we take this book seriously, that we can know what's happening in the book of Revelation. So as we gather together, this is an incredibly profound moment. And I pray that as we look at our text this morning, we would all be encouraged, and I believe that we will be. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We are going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time as we dive in to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering 
and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Father, as we approach your word, we do so with humility. Every Sunday we gather, every Lord's Day we set aside time in our service to hear you speak to us through your word and And we would say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We want to hear exactly what it is that you would have to say to us this morning. We do want to be encouraged. We do want to be convicted. We do want to be challenged. We do want to be changed. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so even this morning, renew our minds as we gather together around this book. As we pray every Sunday, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. If you do not do that work of granting the gift of illumination and opening our eyes to see, we will not see what we are supposed to see. And so, Father, we bring to you the eyes of our hearts, as it were, and we ask, open our eyes. And show us in the midst of these four horsemen, show us Christ who holds the scroll, who breaks the seals, who has all authority, all power, and deserves all praise and all adoration. May we adore him even now as we study. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen. So we have four seals in front of us. The first four seals that Jesus is breaking go together. They are horses. The horses have a specific color. They are detailed about the rider and what the rider's doing and the significance of what the rider's allowed to do. It's a surprising turn of events because we left off in chapter 5 with the lamb holding that scroll and with all of heaven praising God for the lamb conquering over sin, conquering over death. So that he is able to open the scroll and the unfolding of all of human history is going to be okay. It's going to end with God sovereignly on his throne, bringing good where bad exists, bringing hope where only evil and despair exists. And so we would expect as the scroll is being opened, there to be Christ jumping in, ruling and reigning. And so it seems like a little bit of a turn, a strange turn. And we see these four horses And we hear what they are allowed by God to do. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at each of these four horses. I want to look first at the meaning. And I think it's plain and and simple what the meaning is. So we're going to look at the meaning. Then I want to observe the seals as a whole. 
And then I want to ask, so what? Uh, we're going to see the meaning, then we're going to look at the seals as a whole and make four observations. There's four seals that we're going to look at this morning, so we'll see four different meanings for these seals. Then we're going to look at the four meanings, the four observations, generally speaking, about these seals. And then I want to draw out four implications for our lives from this text. So let's start with the meaning of these seals. The meaning of these seals. There's four seals, so we're going to look at each one as we go through verses 1 through 8. The first seal, we could call it this, a counterfeit conqueror. A counterfeit conqueror. Verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. So Christ, the Lamb, is breaking the seals to open the scroll, the unfolding of all of human history, the title deed to the earth, to reclaim the earth and to rule and reign over it. As he's breaking one, he hears, John hears, the sound of one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice of thunder, come. Some of your Bibles might say, come and see, which sounds like it's speaking to John. It's actually just come, and all of these uh, horses are told to come. This is a, a command given by the, the four living creatures to these horses to come and do the work that God has uh, called them and ordained them to do. So verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse, white, that's a, a symbol of conquest, successful military power and might, a white horse, victorious, and he who sat on it had a bow. So there's some form of war happening, there's some form of military conquest happening. In interesting to note there's no arrows involved in this, so uh, as we harmonize the rest of the Bible, we're, we're going to find out that this is actually a peaceful conquest. There isn't a lot of bloodshed happening at this moment with this first seal. And a crown was given to him. A crown was given. He didn't have to fight to earn it. A crown was given. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And that phrase is just as strange in the Greek as it is in the English. It's just as weird and convoluted. Literally, conquering so that he might conquer. Which really stresses two things. Number one, his intention. All he wants to do is own and rule everything. And secondly, his persistence in doing it. Relentlessly, continually conquering. That's all he wants to do. So, the obvious question is, who is this writer? Who is this guy? Well, some say it's Jesus. Some actually say that this is Jesus conquering with the gospel. And they would turn to, Matt, uh, to Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, you would see Jesus showing up explicitly by name on a white horse, conquering in the battle of Armageddon. But I don't think that it's Jesus. I want to give you a few reasons why. Number one, this writer in chapter 6 has a bow and has one crown, and the word for crown is stephanos, which is uh, a wreath that's given to you as a conqueror, victorious, somebody who had uh, maybe won a game, a competition, they're given the stephanos. So it's it's a crown, not of a king, but a crown of a victor. Jesus, in Revelation 19, he's not holding a bow, he's holding a sword. And he's not wearing one stephanos, he's wearing ten diadems. He's wearing, uh, a diadem is a crown given to a king, inherited by a king. He's wearing these many diadems. In Revelation 19, the word is just a plethora of diadems, a, a number of them. So they're different in what they're holding and what they're wearing. Number two, second reason why I don't th think it's Jesus is 
It'd be strange for Jesus to be opening these scrolls, these seals, breaking these seals as he's writing into the world. He could do it. He's Jesus. But it would be very strange that as he's writing, he's opening as he's going, right? Hop on the horse, start breaking seals as you're going down. I think it's a little bit of a strange picture. Number three, it seems strange that an angelic creature would have to give Jesus a command. Jesus, come forth. It's not something that's going to have to happen. Number four, it also seems very unusual to have one horseman be totally different than the other three. It seems like this is a quartet of horsemen going together. And so to, to say that these three are clearly awful judgments being met out on the earth and, and, and a destructive force. And then to say, yeah, but the first one's Jesus conquering with good you know, gospel hope. That would seem very strange. It would also be very weird for the phrase, it was given uh, to be speaking of Jesus. He doesn't need something to be given to him. Remember, what did he do with the scroll? He went and took it because he won over sin and over death. He won the right to it. He doesn't need anything to be given to him. So this horseman is not Jesus. So the question is, who is it? Well, it's someone who's trying to look a lot like Jesus. It's somebody who's trying to look and act like Jesus. This is a counterfeit conqueror, or you could say a counterfeit Christ. This person is pretending to be the Messiah. Messiah is just an old Hebrew word for king. And the Messiah in the Old Testament was promised to bring peace. And this individual is going to bring this peace just in a different way, a different kind of peace in a different way. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4 which we're going to look at later, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says that in the latter days, in the last times, many will come saying that I am the Christ and they will mislead many. And then one's coming after that that will be the Antichrist. So I think this seal probably holds all of those together. Counterfeit Christs, the many, and then leading up to the one Antichrist, the one figure that we're going to spend a lot of our time in Revelation discussing. This Antichrist is the one in Daniel 9 who makes a covenant and brings peace. He'll end up breaking that peace, but at the, at the start of Daniel's 70th week, which is the, the seven-year time period in these latter days that we're looking at in Revelation, the Antichrist is going to bring peace at the first three and a half years. He does it without loosening one arrow off of this bow. This world ruler gets control of everything. He has peace talks with everybody. He brings world empires together for a common cause. And deception reigns as this counterfeit Christ rules. So this first seal is a judgment of exposure uh, with the world gravitating with zero discernment towards an individual that they're willing to have rule and reign over them who will promise peace but end up breaking it. It's very interesting, depending on your view of when the church has been taken out of the world, which we read this morning in 1 Thessalonians, depending on your view, if, if you believe that the church has been taken out before the tribulation period begins, before the seven years begins, it takes the church getting out of the world for world peace to be possible. Think about what we do as the church. What we do as the church is stop false systems and false belief systems and false religions 
from working together to bring about a one-world form of religion, government, and peace. Take us out, though, and the world, with one common purpose, can say, finally, we're done with the church and we can do what we want to do. The Antichrist will give them exactly what they want, what the world wants, but at such a great cost. The first seal introduces us to a coming world leader who will deceive and convince people that he's the Messiah. And then he will gradually, in rising to power, eventually become the dominant ruler in the world. This is the Antichrist. That's the first seal. Second seal. If we call the first, first seal a counterfeit Christ or a counterfeit conqueror, the second seal is the rise of world war. The rise of world war. Verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse, speaking of bloodshed, of the, the slaughter of battle, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. So the Antichrist is going to bring peace, and then this second seal being broken takes that peace. While the Antichrist is being set up, there's going to be many who are going to fight against him, trying to stay autonomous. He's going to end up being victorious. But there is bloodshed like never before. This word for uh, taking peace from the earth, that men would slay one another. That word for slay is the same word in chapter 5 for the slaughtered lamb. We're slaughtering each other. And a great sword is given to this writer. A great sword, not so much about its size, but its scope. The entire earth is experiencing this world war. Again, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, verses 6 through 7. In the end times, there will be wars and rumors of wars, nation fighting against nation. So the second seal is world war happening on a global scale like never before. But even this seal is really setting up, and the third and the fourth are really setting up how the whole world will eventually and gladly end up following the Antichrist through this 70th week of Daniel, past the abomination of desolation, and taking the mark of the beast. Why? Why are they willing to do all of those things and following this man that clearly is doing messed up things? They're willing to do it because of the devastation in the earth, the famine that we're going to see, the, the, de the death through pestilence and war. And they'll say, anybody who can stop this from happening, we will gladly follow. We'll worship even. So all of these seals are setting up for the rise of the Antichrist and what he's going to do in this seven-year period. Number three, the third seal. If the first one is a conquering a counterfeit conqueror or a counterfeit Christ. If the second one is uh, the rise of world war, the third one we could just call widespread famine. This is widespread famine. This is global famine. Verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. Black is a color associated with famine in several places in the Old Testament. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 10 is one of those. But even more than that, we know at the end of verse 5 when it says he had a pair of scales in his hand. These are scales of measurement. They're used in times of scarcity to measure out the food that's allotted to you as you pay a hefty sum of money to get it. With all the economic trouble that's going on in wartime with 
Seal number two, food is scarce. This is an image of a famine. Ezekiel chapter four uses this. Uh, Ezekiel says that we will eat bread by weight and drink water by measure. So again, if you know the Old Testament as John's readers, his audience would have known the Old Testament very well when they hear that this writer is holding scales and is on a black horse, they would instantly know exactly what this means. And if they didn't, verse 6 will explain it clearly. I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Oil and wine were two of the basic foods in Asia Minor, two of the three staples at that time. Local agriculture grew these in Asia Minor with ease. The only one of these three that's not grown with ease is the grain. And the grain was the easiest to buy. It was the least expensive, but it was the most necessary to sustain life. Typically, in that time period, an eighth of a denarius would give you a quart of grain. One eighth of a denarius would allow you to buy a quart of grain. A denarius, uh, as some of you remember, is a typical day's wage. So you work for a day, you get a denarius. But think about what's happening here. Normally, you spend one-eighth of that denarius to buy food, and seven-eighths of that denarius you can use for shelter, for uh, other living expenses, for clothing, for whatever else you need. But food will be so scarce, and supply and demand with typical you know, normal economics is going to be inflated. The price for food is going to just go off the charts, 800% inflation. Because one denarius is going to buy you one quart of wheat, which is going to allow you to eat. One quart of wheat is typically what you would eat for yourself for one day. So think about this. I, I have a family of five. In the end times, I would only be able to work enough to buy food for me. You know, one McDonald's hamburger for the day. And I have no more money left over to provide for the rest of my family, much less to provide for my house, to provide for other living expenses. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 7, that in the end times there will be famines, there will be earthquakes. And these are all merely just the beginnings of birth pangs. Things have taken such a turn for the worst in this seven-year period of tribulation that an entire day's wage is enough to supply only one person with food for one day. The same thing is true about the barley. You could buy three quarts of barley. It's less nutritious. It feeds three people, but only using a day's wage. So again, family of five, I can feed three, of, three members of my family with all that I've worked for for that one day. I'm in trouble. There's widespread famine. But notice, at the end, in verse 6, it says, Do not damage the oil and the wine. So this judgment that God is allowing on the earth is still restrained. It's not unrestrained. It's not full. It's judgment, but it's not judgment in its entirety. God says, this portion I will not allow to be touched. Seal number four, 
We've seen a counterfeit conquer, a counterfeit Christ. Seal number two is uh, the seal of world war and the rise of just devastation in the earth. Seal number three is a, a widespread famine. And seal number four, we could just simply call it death because that's exactly what it is. It's just death. Verse 7, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. Some of your translations might say a pale horse. The word ashen or pale is where we get our English word chlorine from. It's, it's kind of a, 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 a disgusting greenish color. It's, it's really the image of a body that is dead and has lost all of its color. That's what this horse looks like. This horse looks like the color of a corpse because the rider of this horse is death itself. It had the name death and Hades was following with him. Hades is personified as maybe some form of a chariot or maybe a carriage following behind to pick up all of the dead bodies that this seal will bring about. This is the loss of life personified. This is the hungry, devouring grave that is never satisfied. And notice what happens. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth. A fourth of the earth. The, the worldwide population is a little under 8 billion right now. 8 billion people living on planet earth right now. That means 2 billion would die. Two billion would die. And this isn't the span of a very long time, by the way. Two billion people dying. Just to give a comparison, seal four is all of the COVID deaths that have happened in the world right now times a thousand, right? The, the COVID deaths in the world right now, it's about 2.5 million people have died because of COVID or because of COVID-related Problems medically, this is about 2.5 billion, not million. A fourth of the world is COVID deaths for a whole year times a thousand. This is destruction like we've never seen. And how does God bring about this destruction? This seal and this writer is given authority to kill a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Sword, that's murder, governmental action against people. Uh, hunger, that's uh, famine. That's what we've seen in seal number three, but even more uh, exponentially so. Death, that's uh, plague, pestilence, uh, just destruction. That third word, sword, famine, pestilence, it's just destruction because of uh, this disease, widespread disease. And then wild beasts, they are apparently struggling with the famine as well. They don't have people to eat. They don't have food to eat, so they eat people. This is, by the way, to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. In the Old Testament, we see this over 26 times, this construction. There's a formulaic construction here of sword, famine, and pestilence that God allows to bring judgment to the earth. So this is a formulaic curse. Again, if you are an Old Testament uh, Hebrew who knows the language of the Old Testament, when you hear that this 
horsemen is bringing about death by sword, famine, and pestilence, you know that God's behind this. You know that this is God's judgment. Just to give you a couple of these over 26 times uh, that this formulaic curse is used in the Bible. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, or 21, verse 12 says, Either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, or pestilence in the land. Remember, which do you want, David? You pick, but here's the formula. You get these three options. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 9. Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, and we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we will cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and you will deliver us. The judgment that you brought against us because of our sin, we come before you, we cry out, and you will bring uh, those judgments uh, away. Jeremiah 14, verse 12, Ezekiel 14, verse 12. There's so many passages in the Old Testament that would tell us that these seals being broken are an aspect of God's judgment on earth as he's working to reclaim the earth. So we have a, a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit conqueror. We have the rise of world war. We have famine and we have just widespread death. And in famine, we see there's a little bit of restraint. Don't touch the oil and the wine. Even in death, we see restraint, only a fourth. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to go from a fourth to a third to half to everybody. So what are you supposed to do with these four horsemen? When we come to Revelation 6, we see verses 1 through 8, and we, we ask ourselves, okay, what does all this mean? What are you supposed to take away from these? So we, we have the meaning of the four seals, right? We have the meaning, explicit, it's clear, it's simple, it's understandable, we have the meaning. Now, number two, the second point that I want to talk about is just observations about these four seals. Observations about the four seals that we're looking at this morning. As we've gone into detail about what they mean, let's pull back a little bit and let's observe just four observations about these seals. Number one, these seals are commanded. These seals are commanded. The writers are given power. They're given power by God and by God alone. These are grammatically what we would call divine passives in the text. They were given. They don't have this authority on their own. They have to be given this authority. By whom? By God. Why? Because God is working to reclaim the world, to bring an end to evil, and to win back this world in righteousness and in hope. We see the one standing in the midst of the four living creatures, the lamb. He's speaking. And all of these things, as he's breaking the seals, and as he is speaking these judgments to come to pass, they're all teaching us. They help us to understand that there is no truth to the saying, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. There's no truth to that statement. There is absolute judgment happening here. And even in this judgment, it's restrained. We're going to see later on with the trumpets and the bulls, unrestrained judgment. But we could even call these pre-judgment justice. This is pre-wrath, wrath. This is pre-judgment, judgment. But God's the one dispatching these four horsemen, ordaining that they be, and then allowing them to run amok in the world. God's allowed that form of judgment even now. Romans chapter 1. 
says that God allows people, by turning them over to their own depravity, he allows them to run amok in their sins. So just think about what we're experiencing now, but on a, on a grand scale later. Just think about what we're experiencing now with the judgment of God in Romans 1, allowing people, turning them over to their own depravity. We see that even in our own country. Just think about that times a billion in the end days, in the end times. Think about war. Do you realize the United Nations that was formed in 1948 was formed to try and bring peace to the world? And since their formation in 1948, there has never been one day of global world peace where some conflict somewhere isn't happening. Since 1948, when the UN presided over the whole world to say, we're going to bring peace to the world, not one day of world peace has ever happened. That's just going to get worse. The judgments get progressively worse, exponentially worse. It's all just going to get worse. But these are commanded. That should help us understand that God is the one who's in control of all of human history. He holds it all in his hands. No one can do anything apart from God's allowing it, apart from God's predestining things to happen. And we should take comfort in the fact that he does know the end from the beginning. Number two, these seals are coming. They're commanded, but number two, these seals are coming. They're future. Some people would see these seals as currently happening. And there's a number of reasons to, to reject that idea, that we are currently living in these times. We're living in a shadow of these things, but these are not the times of these seals. We are not living in the times of these seals happening. So, as I'm reading through this, I anticipate the question, okay, what, what we've read here, when does this take place? When does it take place? And before I answer that question, I just I have to bring you to the text. John doesn't care about that answer, right? John, John doesn't have any time frame. He doesn't have any sense of this is when this is going to take place. All he was told by God is these are the things that will take place in the future. They're, they're future. They're sometime in the future. But often we are asking questions that inspired writers were never burdened to answer. And I don't think John was burdened to answer this question of when are these things going to take place because he already knew when they were going to take place. He already knew that they were a future development because of the Old Testament. So where in the Old Testament does it talk about this time of tribulation coming upon the world? Where do you think? Let, let me ask you this. Where is the earliest mention in the Bible of the last days of human history, of this seven-year period of tribulation, the latter days where just destruction and devastation, devastation is happening on a worldwide level. Where do you think the earliest mention of it is? It's Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy, we have God telling Moses that there is coming a time in these latter days when judgment will take place and when all ethnic Israel will come to a place of salvation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. 
Deuteronomy 4 is the earliest mention of these latter days. Zechariah chapter 12 describes these latter days. These latter days where repentance will happen. On a whole, ethnic Israel right now rejects Jesus as Messiah, but God's not done with his chosen people yet. Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says that they are hardened in their hearts towards him, and he has now shifted his focus to us Gentiles. If you're a Gentile, praise the Lord that he has shifted his focus from the Jewish people to now us as Gentiles. But he's not rejected his people. His chosen people are still his chosen people. And all the promises that he gave to ethnic Israel in the Old Testament will still come to pass. When's it going to happen? It's going to happen at the end of this tribulation period. It's going to happen in the middle of this tribulation period. We see in Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 Jews come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. This is everywhere in the Bible. It's all over the pages of the Old Testament, the time frame of when this is going to happen. Turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. And uh, as we go through this, we're going to spend a lot more time in Daniel, a lot more time in Matthew 24, a lot more time all over the pages of Scripture. But for now, just look at Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed, and the word weeks is just a period of seven, a unit of seven. It's seven years. So 77s is literally what the Old Testament says there. 77s. So it's 70 times seven years, which is 490 years, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, this is an issuing of a decree from Cyrus to allow the Jewish people back to go to Jerusalem, to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah, the prince, that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks, the decree will happen, so seven weeks times the, the seven uh, years, so seven times seven, 49 years about, give or take, uh, there will be seven weeks, and then 62 weeks will bring about the Messiah coming into Jerusalem, which we've done that before in Palm Sunday, right? We've looked at the years from Cyrus's decree to Jesus riding into Jerusalem. It's 483 years to the dot. I mean, it's right there. Then, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he, this is the Antichrist now, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So Daniel 9, those first 69 weeks have occurred. Those first 69 periods of seven, 69 times seven years. That's all happened already. And then there's a long break, and we're awaiting this last week. That's why you'll hear me refer often to the tribulation period as Daniel's 70th week. It hasn't happened yet. And in this 70th week, in this last week, which is a period of seven years, the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's seven years. But in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. The abomination of desolation, we're going to talk a lot about that. Matthew 24 talks about that. And this tribulation period, this 
Daniel's 70th week is split up all, all over the pages of Scripture into two halves, three and a half years and then three and a half years, and it's divided right in the middle by this abomination of desolation. Revelation 11, verse 2, and Revelation 13, verse 5, calls it 42 months in is when this abomination of desolation happens, or 1,260 days in Revelation 11, 3 and Revelation 12, 6. So all of this refers to a future time period which we've not lived through yet. So to answer the question specifically, when I say generally, these seals are coming, they haven't happened yet, when are they going to happen? Well, I don't know. I know we're closer today than we were yesterday. I don't know. But I do know this. The unrolling of this scroll in Revelation 6 marks the beginning of God's judgment to reclaim the earth. It marks the beginning of Daniel's 70th week the beginning of the seven-year period commonly referred to as the tribulation. And it seems best to understand these first four seals as taking place during the first half of the tribulation. The fifth kind of stretches between the first half to the second half, and the sixth seal and the seventh seal take place during the end of the tribulation, what Jesus refers to as the great tribulation. And it also appears that the seventh seal has inside of it the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet has inside of it the seven bowls. But we'll get to that when we get to the trumpets and the bowls. The bottom line, brothers and sisters, these seals are going to happen. There's no way they're not going to happen. There's no stopping these seals. I've heard people before say, you shouldn't vote for that person because that person looks like they might want to bring in a one-world government, and one-world government would mean the Antichrist, and the Antichrist means the end time, so let's not do that. I agree we shouldn't vote for immoral people. But you shouldn't try to stop the end times from coming as if we had the power to do that. They're going to happen. Now, we want to be on the right side of who's going to win. We don't want to be on the side of immorality or the side of taking the mark of the beast or things like that. No, 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 don't do that. But also don't have some grandiose idea that somehow because of our abilities and our power, we can stop these seals from happening. No, they're happening. They're going to happen. Number three, these seals are chronological. So number one, they're commanded. Number two, they're coming. Number three, they're chronological. They're chronological. Another way to say this is they, they've been split up perfectly, again, in the Old Testament. Uh, Sergio and I were talking on Wednesday night. We got together for dinner, and we were just talking about th this sermon series and talking about all the questions that will come up out of this sermon series. Many of those... I don't know if they will be answered in the sermon series, but we want to answer them. So we were even thinking of uh, over the summer, during our Wednesday night hangouts over the summer, of just doing some Q&A over these things, maybe tackling uh, more of like a Sunday school kind of way, some of the time frames of these issues, putting charts up and things like that so that we can better understand it, we can better see it, and we can better dialogue about it together. For now, if you're still in Daniel chapter 11, we were in Daniel 9. Just know, Daniel 9 through 12 is so important for understanding the end times. And it really divides the world in the end times to two groups. There's north of Israel, there's south of Israel. Israel hangs in the middle, north of Israel, south of Israel. South would be Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya. North would be Iran, Greece, ten nations of the north, Gog and Magog, which is modern-day Stan countries in the mountains of Russia. And the Antichrist is going to show up and somehow bring peace to those two groups. 
which if you know anything about those two groups, what I just mentioned, those countries, almost all of those are Islamic countries. And the split of those two, there's two types of uh, Islam, right? We have the, the Sunni and the Shiite, and then those two types kind of split north and south. And somehow the Antichrist is going to show up and is going to bring those together and also bring peace with Muslims and Jews in Israel. Somehow he's going to do that. Daniel 11 describes the history, and this is why I say the seal is chronological. These seals are chronological because Daniel tells us when things are going to happen, and they just keep following one after the other after the other. Daniel 11, the first part of it, verses 1 through 34, all talk about historically what happened to bring us to the place where the Messiah was going to come in and where the, the Jews owned Israel under Roman rule while they were you know, occupied by Roman rule. There's a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and Daniel 11, verses 1 through 34, speaks so specifically about this man and what he did. You could Google him later. So specifically that people who don't want to believe in the Bible, they say that it's proof that Daniel could not have been written before it happened because it's so specific in what Antiochus Epiphanes did that they say it must have been written after faking a prophecy. Faking it, because it's so precise. But then in verse 35, Daniel 11, verse 35, there's a switch to a description of the Antichrist. Let's just read a couple of these verses. Uh, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Then the king, this is the Antichrist, is going to do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, which means whatever religion he was raised in, he will deny it. He will have no regard for or no desire for women. That word for desire is a a word of of sexual desire. Many commentators say that this means the Antichrist might be a homosexual. It's very possible. It's interesting, if you read commentaries from the 1970s, 1980s even, they say it looks like that's what it means, but it can't mean that because there's no way homosexuality will become popularized so much that a politician could be openly homosexual and maintain an office. As we say in the theological world, that doesn't wear too well in 2021, right? I mean, we literally just saw a Democratic candidate who was openly homosexual running for the office of president. So, could be. You could keep reading, and we will, over the course of our study in Revelation. But the bottom line is that there are such specific descriptions of what the Antichrist will do, and it's one after the other after the other. It talks about the peace that he brings between the north and the south. It talks about the destruction that happens. It talks about at the very end, nobody even wants to be with him because of all that he's done. You could drop all the way down to verse 45. He's going to pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, but he's going to come to his end, and no one's going to help him. So I say all this to say, the seals are chronological in that we've been told in the Bible historically what's been happening and in the future what's going to happen. And if 
Daniel 11 verses 1 through 34 happened with such precision and accuracy that people even look at that who are non-believers and say, well, it couldn't have been prophetic because look at how precise it is. If that's the case about Daniel chapter 11, 1 through 34, then Daniel 11, 35 through the end of the chapter, it's going to happen. There's no stopping it. The second half of Daniel 11 will happen. Finally, number four, these seals are consistent. These seals are consistent. So they're commanded by God. They are coming. There's no stopping them. And they are future. They're not now. We're not living in the midst of these. They're chronological, one after the other, decreed in the Old Testament and now being shown in the New Testament. And finally, they're consistent. They're consistent. And by that, I mean this. The Bible describes these seals and the end times all over the place, all over the pages of Scripture. So many people get to Revelation, they just throw up their hands, and they say, it's unknowable, I'm done. I mean, even huge theological giants like John Calvin, you guys know the name John Calvin? He, he preached and wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. And then he got to Revelation, and he said, I'm out, <laughs> I quit. I don't know it, I can't understand it. But the bottom line is, brothers and sisters, it's everywhere in the Bible. Daniel 11, Revelation 6, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 6. They're all saying the same thing, not even including Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I mean, they're, they're all over the pages of Scripture. Joel chapter 2, they're everywhere. The Bible repeatedly talks about this time period. Even these four horsemen. We see a description very similar to this in Zechariah chapter 6. I don't know if they're identical horsemen, but the imagery is the same, that they're being sent out by God to patrol the earth and bring judgment. So when we read of four horsemen in Revelation 6, people instantly would have thought, Zechariah 6, patrolling the earth in judgment. This is God sending out his judgment. Revelation 6 is just an expanded view of Matthew 24, which is just an expanded view of Daniel 9. Turn to Matthew 24 really quickly. We're going to study this in depth later as well. But Matthew 24 Starting in verse 4. This is Jesus, all of that discourse. This is Tuesday evening of the Passion Week. Listen to how specific this is. Again, this would be so obvious to the hearers of what Jesus is saying and to the readers of what John has written. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Matthew 24, verse 4. Uh, and this is off the heels of the question. You know, when, when are these last days going to happen? How do we know the end time is here? He says this, See to it that no one misleads you, because many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. That's seal number four, or number one. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. That's seal number two. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but it's not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's seal number two as well. And in various places, there will be famines. That's seal number three, and earthquakes. And all of these are bringing about seal number four, death. But all of these, verse eight, are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. That's seal number five. You'll be hated by all the nations because of my name. Many will fall away and betray one another. And on and on it goes into the middle, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. That's right in the middle of the tribulation. Uh, Jesus is telling us exactly what we've read in Revelation 6. They're all here, and they're all there, and they're all over the Bible. It's consistent. So, 
Number one today, we've looked at the seals. We've looked at their specific meaning and what they mean, and I think it's simple and plain. And then we've backed up a little bit, and we've asked the question, just based off of observations, what is this telling us? They're commanded, they're future, they're coming, they're chronological, they're ordered, they're spaced out so that all of human history will be brought to an end point, and they're consistent with the whole of the Bible. So what does that mean for us today? Four things, and we'll end here. Number one, it means that God is sovereign over the story. God is sovereign over all of these details. Some people have asked me, why is Revelation 6 through the end of the book even here? Why do we even have it? If, number one, we are raptured before, why do we have it? Because we're not here. Or maybe we've died. Why do we have it? Because we're not here. Why do we need it? There's a number of answers to this. But literarily, the answer is because the Bible is a story. Right? I mean, just think about the very beginning. How does the, be- the beginning of the Bible start? In the beginning. That's the way you start a narrative, right? That's the way you start a story. How does the Bible end? Right at the end of Revelation, right before it ends with John saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, how does it end? They will reign with him forever and ever. It's a good ending to a story. The Bible is the story of all of human history. And so we have to have the ending. And this is the ending. This is the end of the story because all of this is his story. And it's comforting to us to know that God is in control and he knows the future. Number two, this teaches us that God is just and evil will be punished. Not only is God sovereign over all of the events that are going to happen in all of human history, but number two, God is just and evil will be punished. Do you think of God in these terms? Sending out judgment in the form of such devastation. He's begun to execute his judgment on his enemies in a way that anticipates the final and ultimate judgment and not one of them will ever be able to escape. That's why we say for those who are not Christians, this is why we're so passionately pleading with you on a regular basis to come to this lamb, to follow him now in mercy before you have to bow to him then in judgment. Turn now. And to my Christian friend, I would say this should cause you to love him all the more because even these little aspects of God's judgment, these restrained aspects of God's judgment, they show us the ferociousness of the holiness of God and that all of that judgment was placed upon Christ and not on us. Thirdly, we have an urgent message and an urgent mission. We have an urgent message These seals should remind us of the urgent message we have. We have a mission. We live in this world, in this kingdom on earth, but we live as citizens of another realm. And we should be pleading with others to join that kingdom. Yes, get involved in politics. Yes, get involved in parachurch ministries. Do all of those things. But if those things ever become a substitute for getting personally involved in the lives of those around you and in ministry, that your local church provides, then you're missing the point of what the Bible's called us to do in sharing the gospel with all around us. Finally, number four, and not only is, are these seals teaching us that God is sovereign, not only are these seals teaching us God is just and evil will be punished, and also that we have an urgent message and an urgent mission, but finally, number four, these seals teach us we have an amazing Savior. Oh, my friends, we have an amazing Savior. Just look at these these first four seals. 
Jesus is the antithesis of all of these four seals. Jesus isn't counterfeit. He is the true Messiah. He's the true conqueror. Jesus doesn't want to bring war. He's the Prince of Peace. He wants to bring reconciliation with us and God. Jesus doesn't bring famine. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. And we can feast on him and we will never grow hungry ever again. We will always be satisfied in him. And Jesus defeated death. He doesn't bring it. He conquered it by dying so that we would never have to fear death ever again. And he offers that to all who would just simply trust in him. So this morning, will you trust in him? Do you trust in him? Do you love him? Will you follow him? You either follow him now as the lamb of mercy and grace, or you will see him one day as the lamb who judges in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word. It is profound in all of its implications. It is knowable. God, thank you that it's knowable. And Father, we want to respond at the foot of the one who was slain and just say thank you. How marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us that you would take our sins, take our sorrow, take all the judgment that we deserved and wear it all for us so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of it ever. You took it all. And so we say thank you. Father, be pleased as we just respond in worship through song. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.